You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. really excited to have you again today and um, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the invitation. Um, I'm really glad to be here again this year even if it's in a, in a different format. Maybe just a, a, a short addendum because um, Ryan introduced me at the, as a DAD professor. DAD is short for German Academic Exchange Service. Um, and they partly fund my position uh, at UW, and, and they do offer a lot of programs, short scholarships, uh, study abroad opportunities, uh, not just outgoing from, from me, but also incoming for uh, to go to Germany to do research or to do an internship or to study. So you could always point your students to, they have an English speaking website, which is dad.org, and they have a great database of different programs they might be interested in after they finish their high school or uh, once they're undergraduate students or later on. Um, yeah, it, it would be great to see you in person. I really enjoyed that last time, but at least we do have the technical tools to still have these classes, which, uh, which is great, I would say. Um, my topic today are the European policy responses to COVID-19. And it is, of course, a very current topic. Uh, so a lot of things are still in flux, but I will try my best to give you an informed overview um, of where we are right now. And kind of like Ryan showed in, in his slides, I will start with, with some Corona numbers so you kind of have the figures and the facts. And I think it's always helpful for you as teachers to find out about good websites where you can get figures and graphs um, for, for your teaching. Um, and then I will look at the policy measures uh, in the European uh, states on national level. So what did they do? We all know, and, and the, uh, the one figure already, you saw that the numbers were kind of going down after an initial peak. So what did the states do? Um, and then I could not resist to also look a little bit at the European uh, Union level, because I mean, a lot of stuff that's happening uh, there is very interesting. And uh, Phil asked about what does it mean for European integration? So that will be uh, the second part. And I hope I'm not taking too much away from Phil, who will talk about that in, in depth later on. Um, and then uh, usually I would say, please interrupt me if you have any questions as we're recording this, maybe you could, you could hold your questions or write them down and, and ask them at, at the end. Okay, so uh, let's get started. Um, so the, the first question is, how did uh, the corona pandemic arrive in, in Europe? And um, Probably most of you know that the first known case was uh, late January near Munich in Germany. Uh, Chinese national uh, traveled there on a business trip from Shanghai and shortly before she had been visited by her parents from Wuhan, as you know, the, the epicenter of, of the virus. Um, and in a meeting, she passed the virus to several German colleagues uh, who in turn infected family members but it was discovered rather quickly because uh, this woman informed the company after her return to China that she fell sick 
uh, everybody involved was isolated, and it seemed at that time that the virus was uh, contained. Um, and I, I relate this in, in such a detail because uh, I am certain that is how most politicians and even public health experts in, in Europe imagined how Europe would deal with Corona. Yeah, so, and that explains why there weren't any swift actions. This was late January uh, or responses after this first uh, occurrence. Uh, and the virus has already been spreading in Wuhan since December. So, I mean, we are always smarter in hindsight, but we do see that some time to prepare was lost in, in that uh, moment. And um, the, the first, oops, sorry, the first death uh, was reported about mo a month later in Northern Italy. Uh, and that would also be the first region where the virus spread extensively and, and got out of control. Um, and next we saw um, the virus moving to France and specifically Spain, where we saw rapidly uh, rising uh, case numbers. And of course, this is a chronological account based on media reports at that time. There might be studies um, that actually show how the virus traveled. Uh, and, and we've had a case, for instance, in Washington State in the US, the first case, and people thought that was contained. And later on, we learned by genetic analysis that it had already been spreading. So we might learn a lot more uh, about how the virus actually um, traveled. So um, this figure, uh, similar to the one Ryan showed, uh, um, gives us an impression of uh, positive tests for the novel coronavirus uh, on any given day in the EU and the UK. So we always have to say the EU and the UK now. Um, and this is, like Ryan said, data from the European Center of Disease Prevention and Control. And I will talk about that later on um, briefly too. Um, and it, it is kind of hard, I would say, to make out the individual countries here. There's a lot of colors. Um, but I mean, you can see that the first cases uh, let me turn on the laser pointer here. So you can see that the first cases um, started late February and it's pretty much Italy first, uh, the, the gray color followed by Spain, which is yellow, uh, and then France, dark gray, and Germany is kind of uh, the, the brown, brownish color. Um, and you can see that they all follow a similar trajectory. So it's going up rapidly. Um, and kind of reaching a peak. And then what's interesting, uh, you can see that in the UK, uh, cases started to, to rise a lot later than in the other countries, uh, but then they, they kind of stay up. Um, and uh, for even after the peak drops, the case numbers stay high in, in the UK and they make up a large part of the, of the overall share of cases. So if we see Europe as a whole, there's a clear pattern. You can see numbers going up rapidly until early April. April, they peak about 35,000 new cases a day, and then they slowly start to decline. Um, however, you can see that at the end of the chart, um, last date for this chart is August 5th, numbers are going up again, and especially in Spain. So it does indicate that we're at the beginning of a second wave already uh, in, in Europe. So the, the number of positive cases uh, is one way to kind of assess the extent of the pandemic. But of course, uh, there's also the question, how many of those uh, tested positive die from, from the virus? Um, it speaks to how, how well is the, the healthcare system uh, set up um, and so on. 
and in this financial time figures they have some great data journalists too so they have some great figures i think you could you can use for presentations uh, plots the number of people that have died from corona until the end of july and this graph is excluding china and you can see that europe was hit the hardest right after china so the number of deaths in europe peaked at roughly 4000 a day in mid april but de decreased massively after that same as the figure of of positive new cases um, and again, you can see that the UK is an outlier. So they have um, now still similar daily numbers as all of the EU combined. Um, and you can see that uh, there's a shift. So at the end of July, at the end of this figure, uh, uh, you can clearly see that the most effective regions are now North and Latin America and India. So it's kind of shifted to those, uh, to those regions. So if we zoom into this uh, question of, of death, uh, fatalities recorded in, in Europe, um, Germany is an, is an interesting outlier. Um, of course, first of all, that is related that there's a low number of cases overall, um, but still it kind of begs the question, why did Germany fare so well in this pandem pandemic compared to countries of similar size? You can see here France, Italy, um, and, and Spain, uh, or the UK. Um, so one reason, of course, is that Germany has universal health care. Nearly everyone has health insurance uh, and testing and treatment are covered by the insurance companies. Uh, but that is not that is different to the US, but not that different to other European countries. One interesting difference is that for Italy and Spain uh, had since the euro crisis, even before, have been dealing with high state debt and they had to cut down a lot of their health infrastructure. And there was less pressure to do so in Germany because there had been a continued period of economic growth and budget surpluses. Um, then uh, I think one question we heard in the beginning was about the federalism, the, the design of the state and, you know, what does the U.S. do and what does Utah do? Um, so Germany is, is a strong federal state as well. Um, and the, uh, the state governments are very independent and they're also uh, responsible for health policy. So we could see in Germany that the state governments were able to tailor solutions to the specific conditions in their states. Uh, for instance, we even saw border closures in Germany. So Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, which is in the Northeast and popular because of uh, great beaches on the Baltic Sea, closed its borders even to German tourists. So nobody could come there because they wanted to, to contain uh, the virus. And also for, for health infrastructure, federalism often means that you, that you will have, um, excuse me, that you will have um, uh, uh, hospitals, uh, big hospitals in, in every state. It's not as centralized uh, as, as other uh, states. Then additionally, what's interesting about the German case is that there are health agencies uh, on local level. So um, they are typically understaffed and, and resort on a lot of outdated technology, but it means in every kind of municipality, you would have one local agency which is responsible for health policy. And that made things like uh, contact tracing or trying to disrupt the infection chains easier than, than if you just have that one centralized uh, authority. Nevertheless, um, those, all those decentralized federal uh, responses were complemented by a strong coordination on national level. So uh, Merkel, Chancellor Merkel regularly met with the prime ministers 
Uh, and we saw, uh, Ryan showed you the figure, Merkel is a scientist herself. So we could say that the government from early on, from early on uh, took the crisis very serious and, and followed the advice by the uh, medical health bodies. Uh, the Robert Koch Institute is kind of the German CDC. Um, and there was overall a strong influence of medical and scientific um, advisors. So um, going back to, to Europe as a whole, what explains why the number of cases and uh, death dropped after an, an initial peak? What policy measures did states in, in Europe implement as a reaction to the crisis? Uh, this is an interesting figure uh, from politico.eu, which I can recommend as well as, as a source. Um, and they kind of tried to collect the different policy measures um, and list them by, by date. And you can see that one interesting thing, even without a central coordination, um, most states took similar measures and most of them early on in, in March. But there's some uh, uh, variance uh, it's, and, and that is again, very similar to hap what happened on, on uh, US state level. Uh, and one clear outlier we just heard that is Sweden. And you can see this uh, where very well here. Um, so Sweden uh, suspended all larger events, but after that really did nothing else. So they had a very different approach to, to the crisis, uh, as you can see different from all other uh, uh, European uh, states. And that was the question, uh, how successful are they? And I think that's probably something we can only tell later on because uh, fatality is, is rather high in Sweden, but I mean, you don't know how it's going to look on the long run. Um, so it's probably, we'll probably only know later um, if, if this was a successful strategy. It was heavily criticized in Europe. Uh, I mean, it is, it was the only country who fo followed that path. And a lot of uh, medical experts were very critical um, of this. Um, so, and then you can see the most rigorous measures, uh, stopping non-essential production, um, was here was only taken in Italy and in Spain. So those were two of the countries hit the, the hardest by the pandemic and they had to resort to, to even the most drastic measures to try to curb uh, the, the spread of, of the, the virus. Um, you can also see what's interesting. Um, uh, Ryan talked about the borders in the, in the EU and it's great to not have borders anymore, but in, in this uh, time of crisis, a lot of countries closed the land borders, but not all of them did. So some said, you know, it, it, there might be better measures to be more surgical in addressing the spread and not just closing uh, the borders overall. And I will talk about this because, you know, the Schengen area is a very important part, uh, freedom of travel and movement in, in, the, in the EU. Uh, so that is a, a measure some states are reluctant uh, to adopt. Uh, for instance, Austria only closed part of its borders to Italy to kind of just, you know, keep people from coming in from Italy and, and spreading uh, the virus. Um, and uh, yeah, Germany, you can see, um, never closed uh, non-essential shops. They rather opted for kind of measures addressing certain high-risk uh, businesses. So uh, tattoo parlors, hairdressers, that was something that was closed, but not all uh, non-essential um, shops. So then uh, Wikipedia has a, has a, a great uh, timeline um, for these measures, kind of just for, for, for the big uh, uh, the major countries, um, and they add uh, the important rules for self-isolation and social distancing. Um, and this is interesting because you can see that Germany very early on uh, in, in March implemented um, 
very early on implemented self-isolation me measures. So that might be part of why they were more successful in, in containing the spread. Um, and it, it closed uh, schools at the same time as Spain and France, who had already been hit a lot harder. Uh, so you could see that Germany was a little earlier and sometimes you know, those few days were uh, essential in, in kind of keeping uh, numbers down. And also, again, you can see that the UK um, kind of lags the, the measures. Uh, so self-isolation, social distancing, school closures, lockdown, it's all kind of a little later. Uh, and that might explain why, why UK still has a hard time um, con working uh, to contain uh, the, the pandemic. And there's an interesting paper, uh, the Department of Political Science here at UW did uh, kind of looking at the policy measures on federal level in the US and kind of seeing how that affected um, the, the, the spread of the virus. And you, you could see that often a few days would make uh, a big difference. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of research going on trying to figure out, you know, what are the right measures and how do they affect um, the, the spread of the virus. So these are kind of the, the broader categories. Um, the, that article I, I referenced here is, is very detailed in going down through, uh, going through all of the states and showing all these measures. And you will see that there uh, is quite some variance uh, about what measures uh, were adopted. So there's a different extent what those broader categories mean. Um, and I'm just gonna give you as an example, um, Austria and Belgium here. So uh, for instance, you can see that um, in, in Austria, uh, face masks were mandatory very early on uh, as part of outside activities. So they were very strict on that. While um, Belgium uh, uh, wasn't uh, uh, requiring face masks, uh, but said sitting in parks is forbidden. So you can walk in parks, but you're not allowed to, to sit down. Um, of course, then there's always the question of enforcement. Um, so how strict were those states? And uh, uh, there were some interesting uh, examples shared on social media where indeed in, in Bavaria, in Germany, the police would walk up to people reading a book on a, on a, um, in a park sitting and saying, get up and move on. Um, so uh, yeah, there's different levels of enforcement of those uh, rules too. Um, then you can see that the state of emergency, I mean, that's a question of uh, uh, Italy and France, um, which were hit hard that not, uh, not all of states declared a, a state of emergency. Um, I already talked about the borders and travel, so they differed on this. And then interesting is kind of, you often have like national airlines and the question, what were the rules for those, those airlines? So how strict were states in allowing people to come in or suspending all flights, all international flights, or just to, China or the US, um, different regions. And we'll see later on that the EU is trying to come up with kind of a more coordinated response um, on this. Uh, and then for, for events, uh, that is interesting because you can see that all states kind of work with different numbers. So in some states it will be um, only five people can meet. In others, uh, it's just two. In others, it's eight. So there's a lot of variance in, 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 those, uh, in those numbers. So um, I told you a lot about the different European countries, but I have not really mentioned uh, the EU yet. So, um, and I don't have to tell you, you all know that the EU doesn't just um, uh, correspond to the federal level you have in the US. It's kind of a mix of an international organization and a state. Um, 
uh, and its competencies differ very much by policy field. So what is the specific role of the EU uh, in, in this pandemic and how does it explain maybe the different policy measures um, in the state, in the different states? So if, if you go to the official EU website and check the topic health, uh, we kind of find an explanation why the EU uh, was rather invisible uh, in, in the first reactions to the crisis. So you can see that um, the, the title is supporting public health in, in Europe, uh, and it defines the role of the EU in complementing national health policies. Um, so it does mention serious health threats involving more than one country. So that is specifically what the pandemic is, but it says coordinating. So it's kind of a, a very um, a soft role the EU has, has in this respect. Um, and down here, we learn about the ECDC, so the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control, just named very similar as the US uh, CDC. And that was indeed set up as a reaction to the first SARS, out SARS outbreak we had in 2005. So that was kind of the response. And that was the institution that would have been responsible uh, to kind of warn uh, or, or address the crisis. Um, so we kind of see that there are limits to what the EU can do in the field of health policy, but nevertheless, let's take a look at what actors do play um, a role. So first of all, there's um, a commissioner responsible for health, uh, and the co commission, you probably know, resembles in a way the government of, of the EU, the executive. Um, and because of the treaties, uh, there was not a lot... Um, Kyriakides could have done, the commissioner, um, she did get involved in trying to coordinate the purchase of protective gear needed by medics and doctors to kind of prohibit a bidding war between EU states and be more efficient in, in allocating uh, resources to where they were needed most. Um, and a bigger role is emerging right now. So the EU spends a large share of its budget on research funding um, and of course, now this, in, in thinking about a vaccine, you know, there's a lot of research and, and money being spent on this. And that is something where the EU, with, it, with its exi existing network of research support and funding, kind of can try to coordinate this and kind of help that not every state for himself is working and, and spending a lot of money um, on this. The previous slide also mentioned the ECDC which was specifically set up uh, for a pandemic. However, uh, uh, it is a lot smaller than uh, its US counterpart. So the CDC budget in uh, 2020 was $8 billion and it employs uh, more than 10,000 people. And the EDC, uh, ECDC uh, in comparison receives 60 million euros and has about 270 employees. So you can see it's a very small uh, agency and probably not in a way prepared to, to handle this once in a lifetime uh, pandemic. Um, and one interesting article I found argues um, that the ECDC uh, was established in a context uh, that involved inconsistent national laws on pandemic planning across the EU member states. So it was not integrated um, into national plans uh, to function uh, efficiently. Uh, yet there is some criticism that the agency, even with its limited resources, was too late in sounding alarm. Um, so just a couple of days after what happened, what I told you in Munich, uh, the agency issued the following statement, 
even if there are still many things unknown about the novel coronavirus, uh, European countries have the necessary capacities to prevent and control an outbreak as soon as cases are detected, right? So there was, they thought, you know, we have one of two cases coming over from China, we can de detect them and contain it. So that's what they kind of thought. And I mean, obviously they, they were uh, wrong. So then, um, Thirdly, the Council of Ministers has an executive role in addition to its uh, legislative role. Um, it was Croatia who held the Council Presidency in the first half of 2020, and it activated the so-called Integrated Political Crisis Response Mechanism uh, on January 28th, just three days after that ECDC uh, statement. And this mechanism supports the Council by providing tools to streamline information sharing, uh, facilitate collaboration, and kind of coordinate crisis response uh, at, the, um, uh, at the political level. Um, so then what is that currently? There's weekly roundtables with participation of the Commission, the European External Action uh, Service, kind of the diplomats, uh, the Office of the President of the European Council, affected member states, uh, EU agencies, and, and experts. And part of this, for instance, was uh, an extraordinary meeting of the national health ministers. Uh, and they otherwise meet in the Employment, Social Policy, Health and Consumers Affairs Council uh, configuration of the council. So it helps that the EU can build on existing structures to exchange information um, and kind of coordinate those national strategies, primarily national strategies um, against Corona. So um, let's contrast this to a field where the EU does have a lot more responsibilities. One of the core pillars uh, is, of the EU is the free movement of people uh, codified in the, in the Schengen Agreement, uh, later became part of, of the treaties themselves. You can see that not all states opted to be part of this. The UK uh, state stayed out of the Schengen Agreement. Um, the, the idea is when, when tourists can enter any EU state and then travel freely, uh, you kind of need a central authority to define standards for visas. And, and this authority uh, has to think about potential crises like the pandemic as well, or the refugee crisis. We saw there the free movement um, led to problems as well. Um, because refugees from Italy or Greece wanted to travel to the more affluent states, but by the Dublin agreement, they were supposed to stay in those states. But if you don't have border controls, there, you know, there's uh, not much that, that you can do. Um, and of course, we saw in the world that one central measure to combat the pandemic is to restrict movement. Um, and we saw that several countries uh, closed their borders uh, or reinstated border controls. And that is part of, of kind of the Schengen Agreement that in, in times of crisis, you are allowed to, to close um, your borders. But the problem is it was not in a way coordinated by the commission and that created problems for flow of goods um, and trade and also for transport of important medical supplies. At the German-Polish borders, there were long lines of trucks uh, and you kind of interrupted all those um, uh, chains, which might have even important to be, uh, be important for um, fighting uh, the pandemic. And then, of course, um, I put up a picture here of, of a small border in, in the Netherlands. The idea is kind of to, with the open borders, people adapt and, and you commute and you have families living on both uh, sides of, of the border. Um, and that is a, one of the great accomplishments of the EU to bring the, the 
people closer uh, together. And you can imagine that closed borders made things more difficult. Families couldn't meet and people couldn't go to, to their jobs. So um, there is some coordination now. Um, the EU is trying to draw up lists and kind of say, well, who, who, who can come to the EU? What is a safe country? Where is the pandemic uh, out of uh, control? Um, but just a few days ago, I read an interesting article on, on politic, political EU again, um, where US citizens disclosed how they were nevertheless able to enter the EU. So some states, will check the, your nationality. So they will say, well, you're a US citizen, so you, you can't come in because you're coming from a high-risk area. But other countries will only check where you departed from. So one uh, US citizen said, well, I just traveled to, to the UK where I'm still allowed to travel. And then from the UK, I flew to Spain and nobody checked me and I could just enter. So you can see that um, it, there's not a, that much coordination as would be necessary for really coordinated response. Um, so it's not as coherent uh, as, as it uh, should be. So um, we saw that in, in managing the crisis, in reacting to the crisis, there is some uh, room for improvement, but let's take a brief look at, at the realm of recovery. So um, the, there were some uh, emergency reactions, emergency, emergency funds mobilized by the European Central Bank, the European Investment Bank, but early on, there were calls because, for instance, Italy or Spain were hit so hard uh, that the EU needed more forceful signs of European solidarity, including fiscal transfers or um, kind of creation of, of common debt. Um, and it's interesting because this was tied to the negotiations about the multi-annual financial framework, uh, which the EU drafts for seven years. So there was a lot of stake. Uh, in, in this year, not just in thinking about how to manage uh, the economic, economic recovery after the crisis. Um, and this was especially difficult because the share of the UK uh, uh, net payer had to be renegotiated anyway. So um, this made things more difficult. On the other hand, kind of talking about the budget and thinking about economic recovery made this a larger package and often uh, compromises on, on EU level are kind of package deals where you take one thing and then remove one thing. So um, kind of cut some other funds in counterbalancing uh, the, the money needed for the recovery funds. And there was a kind of a showdown at the first European uh, Council meeting in mid-July in Brussels, where for the first time the heads of state came together again in person uh, before they had video conferences as well. And we saw four days of intense negotiations. It was one of the longest um, uh, summits we, we have seen. So you could see there was a lot of discussion uh, what the right um, uh, recovery measures would be. And the result was indeed impressive. Uh, so a new fund was uh, drawn up. It's called Next Generation EU, uh, um, consisting of 70, 150 billion uh, euros. And the interesting, it's not just about the money, but for the first time ever, the commission itself is authorized to borrow funds on behalf of the EU on the capital markets, which all member states are liable for. So this is the first truly European recovery fund. Um, and to repay uh, the joint debts, the EU receives own resources in form of, of taxes and, and levies. And that is a major step in bringing the EU uh, closer to a truly um, economic uh, union. 
And this was only possible because Germany, who was reluctant to go in, in such a direction, joined this time joined forces with France and gave up its opposition to any form of transfer union, uh, kind of abandoning the, the frugal four, they're often called, the countries who, who want to kind of keep contributions to the EU on the same level or even reduce them. Um, and you can see that if France and Germany, you know, both are behind an initiative, uh, often they are able uh, to, to push it through. And um, Tanja Bertzel, who is a professor at the, uh, at the Free University in Berlin, calls this package in her analysis a gigantic step toward an economic and fiscal union. Um, and then uh, another interesting thing, Ryan showed the picture of Orban. Um, uh, for the first time also, those funds will be conditional on the respect of the rule of law. Because uh, you know, the, the criticism is that EU funds, cohesion funds are often used to prop up those more authoritarian governments and they use the money to kind of stabilize their situation. And they said, we, we don't want this to happen with this money. And if it's clear that this goes to cronies or businesses just affiliated with the government, if there's corruption, there's you know, a way to, to take the money back or kind of stop the, the, the financing. Um, and, but it's, the, the language is kind of unclear. So Orban declared victory after the council said it's, it's in no way possible to kind of uh, not give us these funds. And this is an ongoing uh, fight about what the language really means. Um, and the, the, I mean, this is what the European Council came up, came up with. It still has to be approved by the European Parliament. And they said they want to kind of enforce the language of conditionality of, of rule of law. So they, they want to uh, strengthen that. Um, and then also the national parliaments still have to ratify the deal. And this is very important because um, often if you talk about the European Union, uh, you think about the democratic deficit, how accountable are those elites in Brussels, and that is an argument, especially the far-right populists, uh, about the distant uh, um, bureaucracy in, in uh, Brussels, you often hear. And so national parliaments agree, and it's not just like a program that the ECB, the central bank, whose, whose you know, accountability is very different, uh, draws up, but it's kind of, it rests on all uh, the... the um, uh, on all the states, and they all agree to follow this, uh, this path. But of course, that is also a potential stumbling block. So it could be that a national parliament votes no, especially in one of the frugal four countries. Um, so um, that is um, Austria, um, um, the um, Netherlands, uh, Sweden, and Denmark. And so it's kind of, you know, if, if they... Um, if they vote no, th this would put, put the whole package at, at a risk. So th this is still interesting to see. We have the first step um, on this way. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm at my last slide. And um, we, uh, we said there's always crises in, in the EU. So I kind of just maybe briefly want to compare how this um, pandemic compares to, um, uh, to the other crises. Um, the, uh, the euro crisis we had in 2009 uh, was pressure uh, in, in the wake of the global financial crisis. The common currency came under pressure, and that was because the institutions uh, were set up in a, in a dysfunctional way. And there was uh, very, very diverging preferences. The northern European states wanted more austerity as, a, as a, an answer to the crisis, uh, and the southern states wanted more uh, investment. And, um, 
the crisis was resolved, but it was resolved in an intergovernmental way. The UK was very critical, so the European stability mechanism was set up, but it was kind of outside of, of EU institutions. Um, and there was no common debt, even though at that time the southern states called for this, but because Germany didn't agree, uh, that didn't happen at that time. Um, the, the refugee crisis um, is a result of, again, another sort of dysfunctional uh, agreement, the Dublin Agreement, which said uh, refugees have to stay in the state. They uh, apply, uh, they, for the first time they applied for asylum, um, and that put a lot of pressure on Italy, on Greece, and those states couldn't, couldn't handle the high influx of refugees anymore, so refugees started moving uh, to other countries. The problem here was that there were indeed very different basic preferences. So Eastern Europe uh, didn't really want to take up uh, any refugees, uh, while the southern states and, and Germany and some Western European states said, well, we have to come up with a scheme of redistribution. But in the end, the deal was found again was more an external solution. So there was a deal with Turkey. And what happened was that the flow uh, of refugees to the EU was stopped and there wasn't really an internal solution. So this is still um, a hot topic and could still resurge. Um, uh, and uh, you could say there were only marginal uh, reforms that, that were found. We, uh, uh, we then had the, uh, the, the Brexit, so uh, the, um, the first ever exit of, of a state of the EU. Um, and what we've seen in, in this uh, uh, crisis is that the EU indeed acted very united. Uh, so the strategy of the UK was maybe to kind of split the EU into different groups, but they acted as one block and kind of were able in negotiating uh, their preferences uh, as a block. Um, and there were kind of hopes that this would translate into an integration boost. So there were some minor reforms, changing the European Parliament, kind of adapting that you have one country, one big country le less, and that the budget has to be renegotiated. But there were hopes, well, now that the UK often uh, opted out or often were reluctant for further integration, um, that we would see more integration. Um, but we now see, especially with the Frugal Four, sometimes it was just other countries hiding behind the UK. So there's still different uh, cleavages and lines of conflict. Um, so it, it's not as easy. Now the UK is out, we can continue on our path of, of European integration. And then um, the last part, I mean, that's what we just talked about. So I, I tried to show you that the, the first reactions all very strongly on national level, it, it was pretty much everyone for himself. Uh, and but there was some reflection about this, um, and you could see that states understood if we keep on doing this, you know, it might end the project of the European Union because it's based on European solidarity. And so at least in recovery and coming up, we need to do something to show uh, that we are uh, uh, united and, and that there's solidarity between EU states. And that's part of what pushed Germany to join France and have this first gigantic step in the direction of, of um, truly fiscal economic union. So at least in, in, in crisis recovery, there were some uh, comprehensive reforms. Well, thank you very much for your attention.